Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Campbell, professor of psychology at Michigan State University. Her research focuses on violence against women and children with emphasis on sexual assault, and specifically understanding how contact with the legal and medical systems affect adult, adolescent, and pediatric victims' psychological and physical health. More recently, she was the lead researcher on the National Institute of Justice-funded project to study Detroit's untested rape kits, and this project will be our topic for today's discussion. Welcome to Manifold, Professor Campbell. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So let's begin with a simple definition. What is a sexual assault or a quote-unquote rape kit? Sure. A rape kit refers to the collection of forensic evidence from a victim's body. Um, The victim's body in sexual assault is a crime scene. There's all kinds of forensic evidence on inside the survivor's body. So since about the 1970s, we've been recommending that sexual assault victims go to a hospital emergency department and have a healthcare professional collect that evidence. It could be a doctor. Now we have specially trained forensic nurses. They're often called sexual assault nurse examiners. And they do a head-to-toe assessment of the victim to detect any injuries, treat any injuries, to evaluate the risk of sexually transmitted infections. For female uh, victims, they evaluate the risk of pregnancy. And then if the victim wants, they can go head to toe and collect the forensic evidence, hair samples, fingernail scrapings, um, genital swabs to collect the forensic DNA evidence that's been left behind by the perpetrator. All of that is boxed up in a kit, and then the kit can be released to law enforcement as evidence of a reported crime. And our topic today are untested kits, which it seems that there are a very large number Can you give us an idea of how many untested kits there are in the U.S. today? Sure. What's supposed to happen is is after the victim releases the kit to law enforcement, it's supposed to be submitted to a forensic crime laboratory. But what we're discovering in jurisdictions all throughout the United States is that's not what's happening. Police take the kit and they put it in storage. They put it in the police department crime scene storage facility, and it never goes to a forensic lab. And trying to get an exact number on how many kits are untested in the U.S. is pretty difficult because the tracking systems, the IT systems in most law enforcement agencies are pretty rudimentary. We certainly found in Detroit when we walk, you know, we're trying to get our arms around this, I thought, oh, this is going to be an IT query. We're going to have this number in about 20 minutes. We had the number in about six months after a manual counting because there wasn't a good IT system to figure out exactly what had come in, whether it had been tested. So if you take the problem we had in Detroit and multiply it by all the law enforcement agencies throughout the U.S., that's why it's pretty hard to get an exact number. Best guess, 200,000, 400,000. Somewhere in that ballpark is what we think may be sitting on shelves in law enforcement agencies throughout the U.S. And I I think, Corey... To make you even more cynical about this, I think I read somewhere that in some states where they pass a law or they appropriate funds forcing the police to process some of these rape kits, they process the kit and then they don't do anything with it because they just they just want to comply with what they're supposed to do. So they process the kits and uh, nothing else happens. So, you know. Yeah, that's a real concern that we're having right now is it, it kind of goes back to how you define the problem. Is the problem that we're not testing rape kits, in which case that kind of legislation, you can fix the problem, so to speak, by just turning in the kit and getting it tested. There, done, check, we've solved the problem. But is the problem we're trying to solve 
the criminal justice response to sexual assault to truly test kits, investigate, uh, hold perpetrators accountable, and really improve public safety. If that's your goal, then you have to not just test the kits, you have to do something with the results. Yeah, there was a large amount of money recently that was uh, appropriated and actually paid out for this. And we're going to get into this later because mm-hmm. there's been a large difference in how jurisdictions have used that money. They've right. taken it and not done much with it. Um, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So let's walk through how things should go. Mm-hmm. Right. So a woman is, is assaulted. She goes to the police and then she goes to the emergency room. Samples are taken, kits put together. It's sent into a, a crime laboratory. And what does that laboratory do with the kit? Okay. What the lab does is they need to look at the documentation from the healthcare provider to figure out what are the most probative samples. So for example, if it is an oral penetration, then you need to go grab that oral swab. That's going to be the one to test. If it's a vaginal swab, whatever it may be. So you have to read and really get your head around the case to understand what are the best samples. And then this is where my disciplinary knowledge stops. They do their wonderful forensic science things with the samples. And what the key thing they're trying to do is separate the um, victim's DNA from the perpetrator's DNA. And there's many different methods for that. And we actually had an opportunity to try a couple of different options for that. But they're trying to isolate the alleged perpetrator sample. And if that sample meets the requirements for loading into the federal criminal database, and again, this is where we get into some of the, the the details of, of molecular diagnostics, if it has a number of core loci for the type of specimen, there's very rigorous standards of what this sample needs to be. And it needs to be from a, a reported crime. It needs to be the probable perpetrator of the crime. If all of that is there, then it, that sample, the DNA profile, can be uploaded into the CODA system, which is the Combined DNA Index System, which is a national repository of DNA samples um, from crime scenes. Um, <clears throat> now, the CODIS uh, database was created, I think, in about 1998. Yes. As I recall. And it has two parts to it, right? Mm-hmm. It has a uh, kind of forensic side, which consists of uh, basically unidentified specimens, and it's got an offender side, which consists of DNA samples that have been tied to particular people mm-hmm. because maybe uh, samples were connected either through a sexual assault crime. Or so I think some jurisdictions have laws you can collect DNA from people who, if you just have been arrested for different kinds of crimes. Right. The offender index are going to be samples where we know who the perpetrator is. Usually it's going to be an arrest or a conviction. So it's sort of that's the reference side. The forensic side is the stuff coming in from crime scenes, from sexual assault kits and the like. So you're uploading there and you're trying to see, are you going to get matches or hits and a hit can come to um, can come in on the forensic side of the index, and it might hit in the offender index, saying, "Yep, this sample from this sexual assault kit matched to this other case that was also a sexual assault or from another sexual assault kit um, from another incident." And then you get some information about the pro- probable perpetrator's identity. You could also get a hit on the forensic side, in which case you may not know who the offender is, but you're building you know, linkages and associations across cases. So it has a lot of utility to police and prosecutors. So let's kind of go through these different types of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can, you actually discuss a couple of particular cases in some of your papers. Mm-hmm. Let's go through a case where you have a hit of someone, say a woman's been sexually assaulted. She doesn't know who the perpetrator is. The kid's uploaded. Uh, so this is kind of 
convention, a kind of classical sure. case, an unknown right. person. What can you learn from testing that kid? You can learn a couple of different things depending upon what the hit is, where, which side of CODIS it hits on. So let's say in this scenario, this is a, a classic stranger perpetrated sexual assault. The victim has not been able to give the police any information about the identity um, name of the, of the offender, maybe a description, but nothing that's really helping them identify who it is. It goes into CODIS on the forensic side. If that DNA sample hits to the offender index, to a reference sample over there, that offender's identity is over on that other side because it came in through an arrest sample, a conviction sample, and you can go over to that sample and say, let's find out who this is. And um, I'm always reminded by my colleagues in law enforcement when I get really excited and I say, we've solved the case. And they're like, no, you haven't solved anything. You have a promising investigational lead. I'm like, okay, okay, we have a promising investigational lead. But it's identity. It's a name. And then they can follow up and do the investigation. So that's one thing that it can do. Um, the other thing is, is it may just, there may be no hit at all. And we're waiting and hoping, obviously hoping nobody else gets hurt. But if somebody else does get hurt, that the sample might match to another case down the road. And again, the police might be able to put the cases together, see if there's common elements, and that might help jumpstart an investigation. So this is one thing you've emphasized is the possibility of uh, identifying serial rapists. Yes. In the study of Detroit, you identified a significant number of those cases. Uh, do you recall exactly how many? We've done two different studies in Detroit, and it sort of depends whether you look at just cases hitting to other cases, meaning DNA to DNA. And in that, it depends. It can be you know roughly 30%. When you pull in other information about perpetrators like their criminal histories and see if they have prior criminal sexual assault arrests or convictions, it's about 40%. So I think it's, it's reasonable to say about 30 to 40% of the offenders in Detroit had a other sexual assault case that was linked to them either by DNA or by a prior criminal arrest or charge or conviction. Yeah, this is something else that struck me. Is, um, I think you have a line in your paper, maybe you're quoting someone else and saying that the people involved in sexual assaults are often involved in a lot of other crimes. They are. And so they're stealing not just you know money or valuables, they're also stealing sex, was a, I think was a quote someone put in. It was, that was not my particular word, but it's, it is something that we see is, is that they are, at least again, in Detroit, in an urban sample. And I think it really begs the question of what we will see in other jurisdictions throughout the U.S. But in Detroit, they, they had pretty extensive criminal histories. Um, some of them might be specialized and they do more sexual assaults and other types of crimes. Some of them are committing a whole host of different types of crimes. This is one of many types. So again, it sort of begs the question, if, if we can start testing these kits and identifying these offenders, there really can be important benefits for public safety, not just in terms of preventing other sexual assaults, but preventing other crimes. It kind of changes uh, a preconception at least I think some people have about crimes that people specialize. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that some people, if they commit robberies, tend to only occur during the day, sometime, you know, uh, at, only at night. It seems right. like that looks like, at least in this pool, is actually not the case. No, and that's what we're finding as we're testing rape kits in Detroit and we're seeing replication in other, uh, by other research teams in other jurisdictions. There's a lot of different types of crime. And the narrative of the specialization and this is what they do, it's like, nah, they, they cross over into different types of crimes. They don't specialize in particular types of victims. So it's really, it's, it's an interesting time where research is really challenging 
some preconceived and long-standing beliefs in law enforcement about criminal profiling, specialization, and it, it can make for some interesting conversations at conferences of, um, actually, no, <laughs> that, that's, that's not what we're seeing. I, I think it's kind of been out of fashion to think that there's any sense in which someone can have a predisposition toward criminality. But it seems like when you look at these people, they're criminal in multiple ways, right? So it may be that uh, big data is going to reveal some aspect of this corner of human behavior that people aren't particularly open to believing in. Absolutely. And I think what the DNA evidence does here is, is it, it brings a different type of data point into the equations that we're working with. Because when you're working with arrest data or charge data or conviction data, what you're really modeling there are kind of two things. One is the behavior of the perpetrator but also the response of the system. Did they choose to make an arrest? Did they choose to charge? The DNA is, it's just evidence. It's not confirmatory in and of itself that the crime happened, but it's a different way of getting into and looking at the behavior of these folks and what types of crimes they're connected to. And that's a really interesting data source to add into the mix. It's actually not just, I think, criminal justice professionals have this conception. What about real long-time memories from reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, it, it actually wasn't written by Malcolm X. Um, uh, it was written by, uh, uh, who's the guy who wrote Roots? Um, Alex. Alex Haley. Yeah, Haley, yeah. Haley. Haley wrote, yeah. Anyway, he, at some point he says that among people he knew, yeah, some people would um, break into houses during the day and you could not, if you held a gun to them, get them to do it at night. And other people were exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if he was just saying this because it was a good line or not, but um, mm-hmm. it just seems like it's no longer right. Yeah. The, again, an interesting example of where as we get uh, better data, more diverse data sources to understand criminal behavior, it's not, not quite panning out the way that, that um, the narrative would suggest. Now, let's look at the other case, right? I think there's a common sense way you think this might not be useful to test, but a case where a woman knows her uh, attacker, there is a sample, and that just seems, well, why would you test it? Because you know who the person is. And I think it's a common attitude among regular people. It's a common attitude among police who perhaps should know better. What did you find? Absolutely. that We heard that over and over again in Detroit, and I've heard it in almost every jurisdiction I've been in the United States that has large numbers of untested kits. There's no point in testing a, 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 the DNA in a kit of a non-stranger sexual assault. So where the victim and offender knows each other, and the victim has said, this is the perpetrator. Um, in very resource-strapped law enforcement agencies, they say, listen, we, we can't test everything. This is the sample not to test, because we already know who it might be. Well, what we found when we when we tested this, and this was such an argument that we had in Detroit, I literally had to go to the mat with, let's just, it's science, folks, let's just try science. And even if you don't like it, even if you don't agree with me, humor me, just let's, let's science. And they would, they would say, okay, here we go. Science is coming to to save the day. And I'm, you know, kind of like, well, let's just see what happens. So we tested a sample of non-stranger sexual assault kits. And what we found was when they were loaded into CODIS, they would hit to other sexual assault cases, some of which were stranger perpetrated. Mm -hmm. And then the hit happens and it's like, 
oh, wait, wait a minute, sort of reverse the flow. And it's like, wait a minute, now this file, the non-stranger case has provided the uh, really probative informative sample, the, the promising investigational lead to a stranger case. Or as a simpler way to say it is, is we might have solved a stranger rape by testing a non-stranger sexual assault kit. And it, it might also change the prior of the detective who maybe didn't believe the woman and thought it was consensual. But then when they realized this guy was involved in a stranger rape, they might sort of shift their view of what's going on. It does shift it. It does start to build credibility. And it's also showing a pattern of repeat sexual offending. And again, that's also something that challenges their norm because it shifts from a he said, she said to the he said, she said, she said, she said, she said. These are lining up. We're getting a lot of these hits happening. I guess there's a couple of things. It also kind of changes your conception of these offender profiles. The thought is, you know, here's this nice guy who I was sort of dating and he, he... you know, we were together and this guy got out of a little control and raped me, but he's otherwise kind of a nice guy. And that is my sense of how the offer seemed to be thinking of these kind of known offender cases. But this person's, in fact, a serial offender who just Might presents be. as a nice person to get in someone's good graces and Might be. rapes them. Yep. And again, that's where the, the DNA and the data can help sort of challenge that narrative. Or maybe maybe that was the case in one particular instance, but maybe not in this one or this one or this one or this one or this one. Now, another use for this kind of evidence is actually exonerating people who are wrongly accused. Absolutely. So if a victim has named um, a suspect and identified them through a lineup and the DNA doesn't match, wow, um, then we've got a real problem. And the DNA can be absolutely instrumental in exonerating folks who have been falsely accused, incorrectly identified through eyewitness testimony. Haven't had that happen in Detroit but one is too many. So that's another reason that we've been highlighting the importance of testing the kits is there could be, and there have been folks in prison or facing charges where the DNA evidence pretty clearly exonerates them. So again, for for whatever side you look at this from, pretty good reasons to do this. Yeah, the previous evidence in rape, rape was pretty weak, right? You often have this kind of, kind of BS science like hair analysis, you know, where you look at something under a microscope and people would suggest you could actually identify a particular individual's hair um, or, you know, some other kind of, yeah, even looser eyewitness uh, criteria. Mm-hmm. Now, let's begin to get into police reasoning about these kits, right? Because the kit comes in, police have a choice to make. And, and we understand that they're resource limited. That's right. Um, you know, the officers often said to you that, look, our staff's been cut progressively. We've got to make choices. And not just in te- kits we want to test, but just what cases we actually want to investigate in, in detail. So you found a couple of reasons why kits were not submitted to laboratories. Uh, what were the main ones? One, of course, was resources. They could not put all of them into queue in the Detroit Crime Laboratory. There was absolutely no capacity. But they also chose not to. They chose not to, and they often did that because they had concerns, they would say, about victims' credibility. So we would unpack that and say, tell me more about, you know, what that might be. And they would say, well, she was clearly involved in prostitution. Okay, what makes you think that? And they would sometimes cite, you know, things like, well, she was on this street at this time of day. Like it was shorthand, uh, you know, well, of course, that's what it would be. And, um, you know, in different styles of, of, of qualitative interviewing, sometimes you might push back. And I would say, you know, couldn't somebody just be on that street at that time of day? Well, no, of course not. 
okay. Um, or she was, you know, poor or she was black. And it was like, well, that's a large proportion of, of the Detroit population right now. And it really was fascinating to me that there didn't seem to be any, they didn't have to have any evidence that this was a case of prostitution. They just had to sort of put that out there in the ether that it might have been. And that was an organizationally accepted reason not to investigate a case, not to test a kit. And I would sort of challenge, it's like, you know, folks involved in sex work can be sexually assaulted. In fact, there's pretty good data suggest that they're targeted. And they would say, those aren't the victims that we can help. Now, were they sort of just being practical in the sense that maybe they didn't think they could win a case if the person, you know, if, if most of the time she's a prostitute, but then on this one night she was raped, maybe they entirely believe that that happened, but they just didn't think they could win in court because of the situation. Yeah, it's called the downstream orientation. Everybody's sort of thinking, you know, many, many steps and actually many years down the road of what's going to happen, you know, 18, 24 months down the road. And the police were very quick to say, hey, I know the prosecutor's office isn't going to take this case. And they would often frame it as, as, you know, the kindest thing I can do for this person, even if I believe them is say, hey, listen, I don't think this is going anywhere. Survivors are like, um, hey, come on. <laughs> um, what happened to me matters. This is a case that matters. And it's interesting, the prosecutors were very much saying, actually, no, we will take these cases. We are taking these cases. And, you know, we had a little interesting uh, tension there of saying, you know, you don't take these cases. Yes, we will. No, you won't. Yes, you will. Um, but we do see a shift in the national narrative around prosecution now that we know a lot of offenders do target vulnerable folks, people of color, poor, people who might be engaged in sex work, folks who have disabilities, members of the LGBTQ plus communities, they are targeted. And they may be harder to win, but from a public safety perspective, they deserve as much justice as everybody else does. So I just ask, you know, given that you found the prosecutors are often willing to take these cases, were police just unaware the prosecutors would take them? Or is this, in fact, just a pretext on the police's part? I think that it was a little bit of both. I think there was definitely some pretext on this, um, an assumption. And I think that we they had so many, at least in Detroit, so many detectives coming in and out of the sex crimes unit. They didn't necessarily have the collegial relationships with the prosecutors, so they didn't have time to really work with a prosecutor and get the sense of, oh, yeah, so-and-so, she'll take a tough case, he'll take a tough case. Or, you know, if I bring the case to them and make, you know, make an argument for it, that they'll truly listen. They just didn't have that kind of collegiality there. But I, I could also imagine a situation where the truth is the prosecutor wouldn't take the case, but they don't want to admit that to some academic who's talking to them. And the, and the cop is saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the prosecutor is saying that she would do that, but if I really bring it to her, she's not going to do it. And it's a, it's a pretty complicated situation where, you know, everybody in the system, imperfect communication, everybody's maybe even trying to do exactly the right thing, but they have to kind of make decisions based on complex information. So uh, you could imagine lots of miscommunication in these in these situations. Absolutely. And we had a frontline front row seat for it unfolding as we were sitting there and then, you know, helping them unwind it in the past and try to rebuild it for the future. Seems like this is a, another topic for a potential research project, actually, to see what the relationship is between cases submitted and whether prosecutors are willing to take them. At least from my vast knowledge of TV police procedurals, ah, yes. this is apparently a big deal. Like the cops don't want to bring the case that the prosecutor won't pick up, and 
et cetera. So, and the prosecutor's always communicating to the cops, don't come to me unless you have this, this, and this, right? So, Because they're all working under an incredibly resourced system, and they don't want to sort of invest their time, effort, energy, investigative resources, uh, jumping in line, so to speak, at the forensic lab to say, I need this kit tested. I know you have a thousand, but I need you to do this one. And then to do all of that, to bring it to the prosecutor and the prosecutor say, I'm not going to take this. Um, you know, there's been in some, other, some jurisdictions attempts to try to create a more collaborative approach where things are reviewed together. Data on that are suggested may not work quite the way we hoped, where the prosecutors in those jurisdictions were like, yeah, no, we're not taking this. Um, and it really, unfortunately, reinforced the narrative that the police had of, I, I, I'm not going to work a lot of these cases up because it'll be wasted effort. Now, it, you had some pretty interesting findings about the effect of the age of the victim on credibility and who the police are going to believe. Uh, I'll just give a brief summary and try to get your reaction. You found that victim ages ages 13 through 15 were more likely to have their kits submitted. Older victims, 16 and 17, uh, not so much. And then police are then again inclined to believe women who are 18 and older. So there's a there's this area, there's a spot in in development where the police are are highly suspicious of an allegation of sexual assault because it's in their mind a time where people might be engaging in uh, behavior their parents might not want them to know or their mothers, their grandmothers, their aunties may not want them to know. And they are making an allegation of sexual assault to try to cover up for the fact that they were quote unquote dating an older guy, that they were at a party, that they were drinking, that they were doing those things. So there's it, it varies exactly where the age bracket is, study to study, but the general effect we see replicated across many research teams of there's a point in adolescence where the police are like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I I, th- I think this is this is something else and you are covering this up as opposed to younger victims that they often would find more credible. And then once they're into an adulthood, then they're again might be seen as more credible. This reminds me actually of something I heard a lot about growing up as a child where we're consistently told that uh, you'd find black men historically accused of of raping white women when they're in fact consensual relationships Mm -hmm. and the woman gets caught or she gets pregnant and to cover it up uh, makes an accusation of rape. Exactly. Then your next result was actually really surprising to me. You found that non-white victims were more likely to have their rape kits tested. It depends on what jurisdiction you study that in. Um, and, you know, I think that as, as the data come in from other jurisdictions, there's no effect of race, or we can see that it's white women where it's it's more likely. I'm, I sort of look at my research now f- from a stronger intersectional point of view of really trying to understand not just the race, gender, age, and social class at the same time. So I'm, I even I bracket that finding and say, you know what, I want another crack at that um, in future research to try to drill a little deeper, because it's not just the race per se, it's everything that it's intersecting with, and how they're viewing the overall credibility of the survivor. That I think is the key. And, and you actually bring up another factor when you discuss that finding, which is it's not just race of the victim, it's presumed race of the offender, and that may drive things. Uh, I think it's just really obvious that people assess others on multiple dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of the bias uh, reported against um, uh, black people in America, it very clearly has a very strong class component to it, right? You know? Probably gendered too. 
Gender too, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And even size, you know, years ago, I had this um, very good friend of my dad's, his roommate in graduate school, and he remember him telling me as he he left the United States because he couldn't get a job. Uh, he was a physicist, and he said that he had many more problems in the U.S. with white people than my dad because he was just much bigger. And the guy was like six two or so. And he said, yeah, more threatening, much much greater reaction than my dad, who was five nine. So you also found that victims of gang rapes were less likely to have their kids tested and. That's a little bit of a surprise because... It goes back to an issue that we've documented across a couple of studies is, is that law enforcement haven't had good training on forensics and what forensic science can do. To their mind, there was no point in testing this because... They thought, well, there's multiple samples here. There's no way they're going to be able to to do anything with this. You know, when I've presented at American Academy of Forensic Science, they, they literally literally throw their hands in the air and like, that's exactly what we're here for. We can do this. We our, our science has advanced to this. So there's a real disconnect between the disciplines of law enforcement, criminal justice, and forensic science in really educating them on um, actually we can do this. We we do know how to do this. There is utility. Yes, it might be harder. But this is actually where we can probably be tremendously helpful to you in um, identifying the different suspects in a suspected gang rape. Yeah, we don't, probably won't get into it, but you described some changes in technology over the past uh, couple of years that really allow them to easily separate female, female samples um, and actually get a more precise sense of male samples and distinguish multiple samples. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really liked that we were able to do in our work in Detroit was to try some of these different methods that are used in the forensic sciences for separating male and female DNA. And one of the issues always of trying to get a new testing method uh, up and running in use and in practice in forensic science is that it has to be tested and validated on real samples, real crime samples. You can't just have you know, somebody coming into the lab and providing a sample. It actually has to come from crime scene. And I remember uh, a very vivid meeting of our folks from the forensic uh, laboratories here in Michigan and the Detroit, uh, the Wayne County prosecutor, of them really having a really good dialogue about we can't try new methods. We can't get better, faster ways of doing this unless we can try it on real cases. And the prosecutor saying, I'm not real thrilled about trying a new yeah. method on my actual <laughs> cases. But it was a really, it was a great interdisciplinary dialogue of them just sort of staying at the table and talking it through to say, this isn't some you know half-baked idea. We have lots of good bench science that suggests this is going to be good. Please let us try it on some cases. And they did, and it was. Why can't you just use, like people do in medical science, run both kinds of tests on it, right? Run a traditional test, run the new test. You you might have limited sample. I don't know if that's an issue, but... It can be in a rape kit, yeah. I mean, I'd be surprised if you can't amplify samples these days using pretty sophisticated PCR techniques. Noise. There is noise. There's no, there's noise, no doubt. But you can you can also do that outside the laboratory and try to check how much noise you get from things. Um, I guess this comes back. The last finding comes back to kind of the conventional picture of what a rape is, and police are more often to submit cases where there's physical violence. Is that because they sort of sense if there's not physical violence, it might in fact just be a consensual case? They think it might be consensual, and they also again that downstream orientation. They are at this moment projecting eighteen months, two years down the road to say in court. What is going to be compelling to a judge and a jury? And they're going to, they think that what's going to be most compelling is that physical evidence of, of injury and physical violence and a weapon. And they think that, again, they're going to have a better chance of a charge, a conviction, uh, a sentence 
if it fits that narrative and that stereotype. But, you know, we know that perpetrators don't always need to use physical violence. They can use alcohol, drugs to incapacitate. They can use power control in their um, hierarchical power-controlled relationship over somebody else. They can just scare the bejeebies out of somebody. They threaten themselves. Exactly. There's so many ways. So again, it's kind of one of those situations of like the the science and and what their their, uh, beliefs are aren't matching up. Yeah, it's, it would be interesting to know whether the the beliefs of the police and prosecutors about success rates conditional on some aspect of the case are accurate. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're incentivized to know, right, to to be studying the system, but they may still might have the wrong perceptions. Well, they're incentivized to close cases uh, in part. You know, I'm not sure they're actually confronted with data and evaluated on that basis. But um, if you if you have to allocate your energies across some portfolio of cases, you're incentivized to know which ones you're likely to be able to close if, if you're trying to close cases. Although you can close cases, it turns out, in ways that don't involve investigation. Oh, I see. Close meaning not win a conviction, just get yeah, it, get exactly, it out Yeah, exactly. And this yeah. kind of brings us to yeah. our, the next issue, which is um, cooperativeness. So look, it's obvious that you can't, it's very, at least it's very difficult to have a bring criminal case if the witness isn't cooperating. But the notion of cooperation seems pretty elastic. It's and, subject to inter- and subject to interpretation. So how do police assess whether a victim is cooperating? So when I do training with police, you know, they often tell me, you know, oh, I, I you know, wasn't able to take this case. The victim wasn't cooperative. And I say, well, you know, take me through, you know, what happened. And, and you know, they say, well, you know, I, I start the interview by reminding her that she could be you know, criminally prosecuted if any statement she makes is is inaccurate or ever found to be, you know, incorrect. And well, whoa. Yes. So that's that that's how they start the conversation. So they kind of go through this whole scenario of, you know, well, first I tell them I might throw them in jail and then I, you know, question their credibility. Um, and then I accuse them of prosecution of prostitution and I say, so did she become not cooperative before or after you called her a whore? And, and it, it's kind of a damper in that moment in the training. Um, and, you know, there's always the nervous laughter of like, ha, 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 ha. And I'm like, that's, there's your answer right there. They can make someone uncooperative. And, and if they come at them in a very blaming way and very harsh and threatening them and saying, I don't believe them, you can make somebody walk out that door. And you, from the survivor's point of view, they're like, I, I'm just trying to stay alive, literally. I am just trying to get through my day. You don't believe me. This is going to be a tremendous cost to me physically, emotionally, financially. Never mind. So the whole idea that the victim wasn't cooperative I think we have to kind of bracket that and say, what happened right before you made that assessment? Or did you even really engage with them? Again, what we saw in Detroit was, is it was something they could put in a report that was no questions asked. It's like, just make an allusion to the fact that she's not cooperative, even if you had no contact with her. It was an acceptable, an organizationally acceptable reason not to investigate, not to do uh, a testing of the kit. And seemed it even went beyond that a little bit, it seemed that you had cases where the police would say, make a phone call and maybe get that, that phone call's not returned and that qualified to being uncooperative? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I called, she didn't return my call. I, uh, if you didn't have a phone number, but had an address, went to the, the house, you put the, your business card in the door. So again, think about this. In Detroit, you go to the house, you put the business card of the detective's name in the door. You know, say it says, call me. Well, you know what? They might not do that for a whole host of reasons. But that was, again, enough reason to say, we're not doing this. 
And it was they really talked about sort of um, shifting the onus onto the survivor that if she or he, in the case of male survivors, if they really want it, they'll call me back. They'll really, you know, get their hand in the air. They'll be coming down to the precinct. They'll be calling me back. They'll let me know that they really want to do this. And if they didn't do that, then they're like, well, never mind then. Could be rational on their part, though, because, you know, if it's on an uphill, part, on the, the, the police officer, because if it's, ra- you know, if their goal is to not close as in get the case off their desk, but convict as many criminals as possible, and they sense that this witness is not that gung-ho, that they're going to last through this whole process, which is, I'm sure, very difficult, they might just say, well, that's not one we're likely to succeed on. Let's focus on one where the witness is clearly really gung-ho to try to get the guy convicted. You know, again, I, I'm not, I don't want to be the defender of these cops, but even if they have the best motivations, you could imagine a lot of these kinds of behaviors arising. Yeah, it seems like the threshold is a little bit low, even if that's their motivation, right? A single unreturned phone call. No, that's true. Yeah. But, and, but you're kind of j- testing their judgment. Like, were they just kind of like looking for a way to get off the case, off that particular case? Or were they legitimately convinced that, okay, now I think the probability is much less that we're going to succeed, given that she's not in contact with me? I mean, just the nature of the crime, right, should make you believe that someone might be a little bit traumatized and thus require at least a little bit of encouragement. I assume there may yeah. be some victims who are incredibly gung-ho, yeah. but you know, maybe, actually, maybe you have a sense of the distribution of victims, right? How many victims do you think are going to be aggressively pushing for the case? How many are kind of would be you know, willing to bring a case that the police are very interested? I mean, clearly there are a range of... There's a range, and it's a great question. It's a great research question, and it's really hard to get an answer to it because it's like, okay, I need to find a sample of survivors who engaged with the police. And by the nature of this question, might not have had a great experience with the case. So then how do I get them to participate in a research study when their trust has already been broken and they're traumatized? So one of the things we try to focus on in training law enforcement is this trauma-informed approach of really helping them understand what trauma means, and maybe they're not calling you back because given where they're at in their trauma, they're not getting out of bed. Um, We also have to look at it in the context of the community. At the time that these kids were accumulating in Detroit, you know, the Detroit Police Department was under federal consent decree for use of violence against its citizens. There's a broader community context here of the extent to which it feels safe to do this. Um, The other piece that that I think is a a good lever for for change here is partnerships with victim advocates. It doesn't always have to be the police by themselves. How can we bring in advocates to support survivors that maybe with a little help, a little support, they actually are in a place where they can do this, or we can get them to a place where they can, you're quite right, sustain a very long, very challenging, very difficult process. But without help, you know, how are they going to do that? I assume these organizations exist in many jurisdictions uh, in the U.S., perhaps wealthier ones. Uh, do they? Are there such organizations in Detroit to help women out? Now there are, but the bulk of the time that these kits were accumulating, no. They, had, um, they did have a victim advocacy program within their police department, again, stretched very, very thin, but also part of that organization, not somebody outside the organization that can kind of rattle the chains a little bit and say, wait a minute, what are you doing here? In terms of an advocacy presence outside of law enforcement, um, they had one person, one advocate on average. One community-based advocate is not going to be able to, to radically shift this tide, and that's, that's certainly what we found there. But we are trying to move communities to having more advocates, and that's certainly the case now in Detroit, where we have community-based advocates, the, the advocates working in the system, really trying to, to approach this in a very different way. 
Yeah, this kind of thing is standard in, on college campuses uh, these days, it seems, and maybe other places. Um, I, I guess I'm not surprised to find that they it doesn't exist in uh, kind of under-resourced. It's a class issue. Yeah. It's a class issue, a gender issue, a race issue. It's a very intersectional problem. You know, it's, it's funny, this kind of casts a more nuanced light in the general picture that criminal prosecution is something that the state carries out, you know, regardless of the victim. We're just doing it for justice, uh, for, you know, everyone's safety overall. It seems in actual fact, right, you need to have, the kid has to be pushed in some degree by people outside the system. The state may not do it on its own, maybe in a murder case, but even then maybe not without people pushing for it. So it's actually, you know, you have to kind of own your own case if you're a victim a little bit. And that's a pretty tough ask and a pretty big responsibility we put on somebody who's just been horribly traumatized. And that's why we need our colleagues from social work. We need them, uh, the advocates to be that person to, to intervene and to understand the system. You know, the criminal justice system doesn't make itself easily understood. It helps to have somebody who knows the system, knows the steps to say, wait, 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 wait. This was supposed to move from point A to point B. It hasn't. Where is it literally physically? How do we move it from point A to point B? Wait a minute. Why is it stalled here? Whose desk does it sit on? The more you understand the inner workings of the system, you know the questions to ask. And that's where the advocates can be instrumental. Such a tough situation, though. I mean, imagine, Corey, that, you know, your sister or your cousin was sexually assaulted and... You know, she was a little bit reluctant because her first encounters with the justice system were very rough and thought, wow, to pursue this all the way through trial could take a year, a lot of my life. I want to move on. I don't want to be dwelling on this. What's the defense attorney going to say to me in court? You might say to your sister or cousin, hey, let it go. I mean, we want you to recover and get past this. You got the rest of your life to live. Do you really want to invest a year of your life in this? And so, you know, even from her, just just the sense of her well-being, you might advise her. Yeah, don't don't go through this process, right? And how and how do you fix that? How do you fix that? Because you also don't want wrongful conviction, so you want a rigorous process, right? So, I guess in light of this discussion, what I would encourage her to do now is, so she may not want to go through it, but have her kit tested, because it may turn out that this guy's a serial rapist, and sure, you know, sure. Um, yeah, I meant I meant further, not just the kit thing, but the. I'm curious if you survey a bunch of detectives, how often they see it as. I and my team invested a ton of effort into this, and then the witness basically just opted out at some point and said they didn't want to continue with it. And we felt like, wow, this was a waste of everybody's resources. Now we're going to test every witness very carefully at the beginning and be really confident that they're going to be there for us through this long process before we start. Uh, is, is that an attitude that a lot of these detectives have? They do, and they can. some of, the, some of them can point to a specific case. But what's interesting to me is, is independent of whether there's a specific case they have, it's part of the lore. It's part of the organizational narrative. And again, it becomes one of those things that you can make reference to that is, questioned, that is un- unquestioned and accepted of like, oh, well, that's why we're not going to do this, is, is because that one time that they can give you no detail about. <laughs> but that one time, that's what happened. Yeah, it totally goes back to whether they're accurately perceiving reality or they're just relying on some folk stories that are in their community. And you know, and they also seem inclined in a certain direction and just need a little bit of push to move in that direction, right? One heard right. of case. They, would, they would love to it for, yeah, for that to be a good justification for what they were going to do anyway. One of the things I try to talk with police about is, is we, don't, we don't have to make all these decisions right now, right now. 
in this very moment, in the first 24 hours after an assault, 36 hours, 48 hours, to really try to, again, that telescoping out over that full long range and asking survivors right here, yes or no, are you in or are you out? It's like, blah, I can't, I, that, 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 it's like, slow this down a little bit. And I know I, that sounds counterintuitive because the criminal justice system is painfully slow, but it's fascinating to me how quickly they put victims on the spot to make a decision, yes or no, right now. It's like, how do we get them connected to to advocates, get them some social support, get some family support? They may make the decision, I don't want to do this. You're quite right, Steve. They may say, I, I can't do this. But the reasons, the number one reason why survivors do report is they don't want this to happen to somebody else. Exactly. I mean, that that's the real reason why you might encourage your sister or relative to, hey, get this guy off the street so he doesn't do it again. But then on the other hand, it's like, it's your sister that's going to endure a year of, you know, uh, trauma over this, right? So, uh, you know, in the scheme of things, it seems like $400 or $1,000 to test the rape kit isn't really that much money. I mean, it's a f- maybe some hours of equivalent to some hours of detective time or attorney time. You know, it seems like that it, it can't that can't be the major cost of prosec- of of pursuing the case, right? It's not. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a great return on investment. Yeah, we exactly. see economists now kind of coming into this uh, this space on untested rape kits, and you know we were fortunate that we had a, a, a colleague out in at Stanford sort of look at some of our data from Detroit, and other economists looking at data from other cities is like this is a heck of a return on the investment in terms of what it gives you for what it costs to actually test the kits. Yeah, I think that study needs to be shown to more policy people and governors and you know mayors and such. I mean, the ROI, I think that this person, an economist, I think at Stanford Business School maybe found was just unbelievable for, you know, uh, conditional on testing the kit. You know, you get somebody off the street and they're likely to be a multiple offender and et cetera, et cetera. So the payoff is just enormous. You've got another line at one of your articles. I think it was someone, not an economist, but someone in criminal justice who said, we never solve so many crimes so easily by testing these kits. Yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's an unbelievable trove of evidence that's you know, not, not and really It's going to get much better. Mm-hmm. Because CODIS is cumulative. As we add more and more samples, the probability necessarily increases that we're going to keep getting more and more hits and matches. So populating CODIS has some real long-term benefits. One question just occurred to me. Have you found uh, results similar to what may have been found in other cases where you, you've got these new cases of murder where you kind of have some particular person you have a suspect on and you, you don't quite know who this person is, but you've got some information and you kind of use uh, uh, relatives' information to try to identify this person. Uh, you may have an actual hit from this person, but you have, you know, this cDNA. Their cousin is in, you know, a genetic database, and you sort of triangulate. Have those cases occurred in rape yet? They're starting to. Um, it's not been something that I've I've done in my particular research, but at the, the National Sexual Assault Kit Initiative meeting just a few months ago, big topic of conversation of what is the current technology on that? How reliable is it? How might we be able to use that in sexual assault cases? So I guess the, we should step back. The the kind of index case for this was the um, Golden State uh, serial right. uh, you know, right. I, murder I think, case. I think in the context of these famous cold cases, uh, often serial killers, there, there are a large number of these cases getting solved. Like yeah, for a while, it seemed to be like one a month, and now it's probably like so many that they're not reporting all of them in the in the newspaper. And I think the the real issue there is there are enough Americans that have done just for ancestry type purposes inexpensive DNA array testing 
um, that if you want, if you really wanted to solve the case and you had a decent DNA sample, so you actually did uh, some level of sequencing, somewhat beyond CODIS markers, but some level of sequencing, even low coverage sequencing of the sample, you're almost guaranteed to find something like a second cousin in the existing databases. And so if you really want to solve a crime, you can narrow it down to like 100 people right away. Well, the complexity is that a lot of these uh, databases, like 23andMe, have... uh requirements they not be used by law enforcement, right? Well, but this, this has not been tested legally, so this is an extremely interesting question, which I think is going to be tested legally right. in the near future. But they're currently using, I think, probably one database, which is more or less open source and is pretty explicit in the fact that they will allow the sample to be shared. So they're, I mean, full disclosure, I'm on the board of a company that is working on this kind of technology. Uh, so uh, the, there was an open source database that was used a lot for this. There's a commercial company called Family Tree DNA that was in the kind of ancestry space. It's one of the smaller ones. They have maybe a million people uh, in their data set. Um, and they cooperate with FBI and law enforcement. The big question is to what extent Ancestry and 23andMe, which combined have about 30 million people, that's like 10% of the U.S. population, uh, in their data. As far as I can tell, there is no legal grounds on which they can resist a court order for a criminal investigation. And so far, one has not been brought. There have been requests to those companies from law enforcement, but so far short of an actual court order. So in other words, if a judge in Iowa says, okay, I think this is really central to the case, I'm issuing a court order that 23andMe allow this match. Yeah, the match is like just a little piece of code which runs through their data set. It's not really invading anybody's privacy. Oh, like, that's a real question. <laughs> well, if, if no match is found, for sure nobody's privacy is invaded because uh, you can't say sure. the algorithm was looking at you, right? The algorithm just... But, but, but you match. I mean, but, Steve, this is splitting hairs. Right. Once you find <laughs> the match, then the question is, okay, the person who's going to then be contacted by law enforcement over the match, their privacy is in question. But that's very similar to a situation where, you know, there's a photograph of, you know, the, the crime scene and you see some guy in the background. Oh, that guy might be a witness. Who is that guy? Uh, and you look them up and go and find them. Did you invade that person's privacy in pursuit of justice? In, in a way, you did, right? Well, if but, someone has a photograph in some sort of, if it's in a newspaper, that's essentially putting your own information in, in the public domain. How about from a security camera? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you, there's different I, cases, right? Yeah, I mean, all these things, where, of course, it's especially scary and weird because it's your DNA or your cousin's DNA. But the tradition that in order to solve a case, the police are allowed to pursue clues is is pretty well established, right? So, but but there are limits on evidence that should be accessible and available for trial. We don't allow unlimited collection of data, Steve. Right? So, there's always been limits, and the question is where are you going to draw those boundaries? In right. This case? So that that's open. That law has not been tested yet. One thing that again surprised me in your findings. This comes back a little bit to police education is their view of DNA. You, they seem to see it as something that's not actually integral to the investigation. It's more of like it's kind of confirmatory, icing on the cake. You know, you have a you have a, a suspect, you want to nail it down. And and that was really puzzling. That suggests that something is not being communicated about progress in the function of the database and the quality of the test. So how did that come about that police seem to have this attitude? That was surprising to me too. When they would say, you know, oh well we didn't we didn't test this 
this kit because we didn't have a suspect. And I'm like gripping the table like, well, that's one way you can get a suspect. (laughs) But again, you know, I'm like, tell me more about that, you know, in this, you know, open ended style of interviewing. And it was really fascinating to sort of walk this back that because when DNA testing first became available for law enforcement, it was such a scarce resource. It was heck of, it was incredibly expensive. It was incredibly time consuming. And again, the norm, the culture was, this is not something that we can do all the time. This is only for certain cases. And it wasn't even just like the credible cases. It was the ones that were going to court. And it really was that confirmatory check in court to assure the judge and jury, we have the right person. So because of the tremendous resource constraints that this was such a precious, precious thing that could only be used on a couple of cases, the ones going to trial, that sort of colored the whole perception on what its utility was. Um, And then, you know, we look at it now in 2019 and say, well, this has tremendous investigation utility to you. That wasn't that wasn't what they were how they were trained. It wasn't how they viewed it. It wasn't what they were taught. It wasn't part of their narrative. So, so this is puzzling. It's not how they're trained. So the training has clearly lagged behind by by a decade or more. Yes. Advances. Yes. And so you you know implicit in the back of this conversation is I'm kind of wondering what effect your discussions have had on the police as far as their practices go. But I'm curious as to how that's possible, right? How training can be so far behind? And do you think, actually, that you may have had an effect on uh, police practice by having these conversations? I hate to interrupt, Corey, but you know the the standard story is that f- for a medical innovation, which saves lives, and is you're trying to get well, highly trained, highly educated doctors to use the medical innovation, the time scale is like 17 years between when the laboratory breakthrough is made and when it is actually used in widespread medical practice. So the cops are not that much worse than the docs, even in the case of DNA, actually, in case of their level of understanding of what's possible and their application of uh, the technology. Well, this is a little bit worse because it's not just the practice. It seems like the doctors may be, there may be training that may come on a new medical procedure, but that statement you made says it's actually not taken up into practice. Here it sounds like the training hasn't changed. But the, the training hasn't changed. But the, Okay, that may be true from what they're getting in the academy or something. But what I was told in the medical context is that if it wasn't established technology when the doctor went through medical school, it's much, much harder to get them to adapt to it later on. And it sounds like a similar situation. But maybe the medical schools are teaching up-to-date stuff and the police academies are not at the moment. I think that, at least in Michigan now, there's a real push to change the way we're doing this in the academy, and that does come about from science, and it comes from a lot of scientists really trying to close that science practice gap and really focusing not just on what we find, but how what are our pathways to implementation, to dissemination, how do we get out of our walls here at this university and actually go to police departments, medical schools, wherever it may be, and share the information. In this case, they weren't getting it in their training. The training was out of date. Um, And the other factor that was interesting in all of this is now, even now when they're like, okay, now I get it. Now I'm starting to understand how this can help me build my case. When do I get my results? It's the timing. We need this faster, faster, faster. If if this is going to help my investigation, you can't sit on it for six to nine months. I need it now. So a real push again, sort of back to the bench scientists to say, how quick can you do this in a reliable way so that its utility really can be realized in an investigation sense, but it's got to be both the mind shift from the police to view it as an investigative resource, but the lab's got to come help and get this turned around much faster, much, much faster. Just one question. Are these labs uh, 
more or less in-house labs, or are they being outsourced to commercial enterprises? Um, right now, it's both. Um, and again, there's there's a, a recent re- recent-ish National Academy of Science report on this that there needs to be independence. Um, this is a different discipline. Um, there needs to be some checks and balances. In Detroit, at the time these kits were accumulating, their lab was internal. It was it was part of the of the police department crime scene, and we're starting to see a slow shift to moving the labs outside of the law enforcement agency into its own independent uh, um, office. And we are seeing a growing um, independent um, for-profit um, lab marketplace developing to, to meet demand. I, I hate to sound like a capitalist, but if you want this system to function efficiently, it cannot be in the hands of government agencies. It's got, there has to be actually market competition because the technology is changing so fast that uh, there's no way the state labs are going to keep up with the latest technology. I mean, I thought this was something that had changed quite a lot in even, I mean, again, quite obvious in light of our discussion that my beliefs, my priors are not accurate, but um, this was a huge issue in wrongful convictions going back 30 years, having police labs under the prosecutor office, right? They're subject to pressure, they're subject to manipulation, even if it's not explicit, there could be bias, and there's just been a real push, right, to get yes. these things. If, if not for profit, they're an independent. Just you know. independent. That, that's another great point, Corey. I mean, I mean if, if it's a if it's a for-profit private lab, and typically you'll have some centralization, so you'll have some fairly big lab, and you may be shipping the sample to them, you know, you barcode it in an anonymous way, so very tough to, like, rig the case for the prosecutors and stuff if, if it's a commercial lab that's far away that's actually processing it. Yeah, it's kind of surprising, I guess, that this hasn't... It's not a, it seems like it's not a big change in the culture, it's just a matter of uh, outsourcing. I, well, I don't know how many really, other than OJ, I don't know how many really rigged cases there, there were with DNA, but... Uh, yeah. Surprisingly, I, they don't let the social scientists in too often to really poke around <laughs> real and do the real deep dive in the records to get all that information. I, I mean, I'm guessing the main, it, you know, you can have often wrongful convictions based on witness testimony, other stuff, and then people are cleared by DNA. I, it seems like that's more likely than someone actually rigging the DNA data to convict the criminal. But maybe I'm wrong. I think it's it's very hard to do in this case. I mean, other cases of labs that have had other forms of testing, right, that's been rigged, right? You have some kind of hair sample. Uh, that's all your evidence says, some hair sample, and you want to come back with the right result. Yeah. I mean, if you, have, if you have sample swapping by the detective before they send it to the lab, that's where rigging really could occur for sure. I think the other piece here goes to if they if they're in the same organization, they're still under the same organizational constraints and resources, mm-hmm. the same sort of organizational culture and norms. And we certainly saw that. I could interview folks who were at the time in the Detroit Police Department crime lab and I could look at their transcripts and, and sort of see them talking about, you know, victims and their credibility. And I, honestly, without an ID number, I don't know whether I was reading a detective interview or a crime lab. It was just part of the organizational culture. Not all of these are worth it. Not all of these victims are credible. And it was really kind of a groupthink uh, mentality that we were starting to see there. So I think for a whole host of reasons, the independence is really critical. I think we're going to be in a situation soon where the cost is completely immaterial. It's going to just keep going down from where it is now. And the DNA genotyping and the the data processing types, information processing type stuff will be almost too cheap to meter in a sense. And the real issue will be the privacy issue that you were uncomfortable with a moment ago. It's like, well, wait, well, wait, wait a minute. What can you do? I'm not, I don't want you to do that. 
Yeah, look, I think it's probably going to come close to what's happening with just video surveillance. Yeah, right? face recognition is in yeah. that situation now. Someone said um, in China, a friend of mine said that in Beijing, it's impossible to commit a, commit a crime, get away, for, get away with it for more than 24 hours. Yeah. Because there's so many cameras. It seems like it's very, very hard for anyone's relatives to commit a crime in the U.S. Um, because all of our DNA will be available. People had often described prosecutors as the most powerful people in law enforcement as far as deciding, you know, ultimately whether to bring a case and how they want that case brought about. It seems that in the case of rape, the most powerful people may actually just be the police officers. They are. They are. They're often referred to as the gatekeepers to justice um, because if if you don't get from through that, that it goes nowhere. If there's not a report, um, if there's not an investigation, if it's not a quality investigation, if they don't test a rape kit, if they don't interview suspects, uh, if they don't canvas the area looking for witnesses, there's nothing that can go to the prosecutor. And that's what happened in Detroit. And we see it in so many jurisdictions. The prosecutor like, I didn't even know this case existed. You know, th- this was triaged way before, you know, it even got to us. It's the police are the, are the gatekeepers to justice here. Yeah, and you can totally imagine how this is very class-based. So if you're a affluent person with resources, you never think of the police as the gatekeeper because if they're kind of slow on your case, you can elevate the complaint. You know who to call. Your attorney can call somebody downtown. But if you're a person with no resources, the police officer really can gate the whole thing for you, right? Absolutely. So let's <clears throat> let's move now to what can be done about the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this part of the discussion happened a little before we started recording, but you said most obviously you can reduce sexual assaults. Yes. And, and that's, I want to bracket that. I'd like to have that discussion with you maybe another time. Sure. Because I think there's lots, lots there. But let's start focusing on what can be done within the criminal justice Absolutely. system to improve things. So if you were to give us your top three or to five or 10, uh, if there are many more, we'd like to hear them, ideas for improving how sexual assault is handled in particular and how rape kits are handled, what would they be? Number one, training law enforcement from the earliest moments of the academy through their continuing education in a trauma-informed, offender-focused investigation. What we mean by that is teaching them about trauma. They get no training on trauma. None. Zip. Nothing. Nada. So helping them understand why victims behave the way they do, how memory works, and having them really understand what science tells us about how victims behave instead of letting their stereotypes, their beliefs dictate that. They have remarkable stereotypes as to how people are supposed to respond to sexual assault. So sometimes saying, well, this person didn't seem terribly upset. Right. Right. Right, and 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 we can look at we can look at the at the data and um and, and look at research on how victims respond to trauma. There's a huge variety of, of responses, and many do have a very very blunted affect. They're not demonstrably upset, but what they think, what they're expecting, is is a complete meltdown, hysterical crying. And if a victim doesn't show that, then they're like, well, that must be a false report. So in changing this, we have to teach them what trauma is and what trauma does and how trauma affects victims. But I I said two things there. I said a trauma-informed, offender-focused investigation. The crime of sexual assault, they approach as investigating the victim. They don't investigate the offender. So we have to shift them to go do the investigation of the offender. Um, What is his or her um, background? What do you know about them? So part of it is is, is shifting that, that training. The second piece is they need to test the kits 
And again, very much the way we did this in Detroit, which is, you know, when they would say, no, 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 there's no value. And I said, hey, let's just try this science. Let's see what happens when we do some science here. The science said, hey, there's there's real benefit. Our colleagues in economics have said there's really benefit here in terms of the ROI. So I think we need to keep testing testing the rape kits. And the third thing that we need to do is really try to shift our lens into a multidisciplinary framework of instead of looking at this of, of, you know, well, there's the advocates over there, or maybe we hope there's advocates. Um, The prosecutors are here, the police are there, the nurses who collect the data. We need to be bringing this together into a multidisciplinary framework. We see this in in team science all the time. You bring people together in a multidisciplinary framework, you put them together in a team, you get some of those tensions that happen between different perspectives, but that's how you get growth. That's how you get change is you put them together and you get a little friction, little argument, different ways of looking at things and really trying to coordinate care for survivors, advocacy, investigations. Communities that are doing that are seeing higher victim satisfaction and they're seeing more cases move forward through the criminal justice system. Which, which uh, cities are on the front line of these kinds of changes? Oh, there's no way I'm going to go there. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is, is um, there, there are cities that are trying some different things. They're trying, you know, some have evaluations, some don't. M- my take on this is, is that each, each city is unique. It has its own history, its own culture, its own everything. I don't want to say, you know, Portland, Oregon's model is going to work in Detroit. Portland's doing some good stuff. Detroit is doing some good stuff. I don't know that the good stuff is the same good stuff in both cities or that it needs to be given, you know, the the history and the culture in those different cities. Yeah, I don't know whether this was actually part of our, we've taped this or not, but we talked about the fact that there was a fair amount of money that was allocated. I think it was 44 million or more. I basically have these uh, rape kits tested. This is within Michigan or This was nationally, nationally yeah. yeah. the National Sexual yeah. Assault yeah. Kit Initiative. And uh, what did you find in how those funds were used? Um, not part of my research. There's been some investigative journalism um, looking into that, and it's been uneven, um, which is kind of what you would expect, that there's been jurisdictions that, um, for example, Detroit and Cleveland are recipients of those funds, took the funds, tested the kits, moving cases forward in investigation and prosecution. And there's been jurisdictions that have used that fund to count their kits. And that's about it. Um, and then there's been some that have counted their kits and tested their kits and said, thanks, we're good. Um, <laughs> so it, it's uneven. But you know, the extent to which that's different from a lot of other federal initiatives where you see uneven uptake and utilization, I don't know. Um, but it hasn't been uniformly jumped on and utilized the same way in all jurisdictions. What kind of response have you gotten to your research from politicians? From politicians, they're interested in, in you know, how, how do I make my community safer? Safer? How do I make the lives for my constituents better? And if this is going to protect public safety, they're very interested and very engaged in it. So from the political community, it, it, there's been a lot of will. Um, at the same time, there's always been the, whoa, 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 how much is this going to cost? <laughs> Who's going to fund this? And, you know, very excited about, you know, we're going to mandate this. And then we're like, and, and you have to write a check. Unfunded mandates, you know, our policy, you know, analysts will tell us very clearly, not, not, nothing's going to happen there. But even when there is money attached to it, as we were just mentioning, it doesn't necessarily mean something's going to happen. So the, the political folks, um, definitely goodwill, worried about the money. 
Law enforcement, it's been interesting because, you know, I, a lot of what, I, what I'm saying and doing is stuff they may not want to hear, they don't like. And I've always, always bracing for that moment of like, oh, boy, here we go. You're the, you're the lady from the university. Exactly. Who's here to tell us exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, when was the last time you carried a badge? Never. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and I think that's part of how I try to approach it. It's like, I don't do what you do. I don't walk in your shoes. As a nature of my job, I don't. I don't wake up knowing that I might die in the service of my job, and they do, and I I respect that. Um, and we each have something to bring to the conversation, and so I've actually seen a lot more um, interest and engagement from the law enforcement community than I thought I was going to have, and they've actually been pretty open of like, yeah, we've been doing this, and and this isn't what I signed up for. I actually don't want I don't want to be closing all these cases. I just there's there's no other option. I don't have the resources. I'm burned out. I I'm frustrated. I'm help, and and that's been both sad and gratifying to be able to have some authentic conversations. It seems that there, are, it seems there are actually other options aside from just closing cases. Right? You could leave these cases open. Yes. And grant that they're unsolved. You know, my general sense when I look at criticisms that are made of law enforcement that it's it's in part resources, but it's also a matter of incentives. Yes. And the incentives in many cases are just off, right? Incentives to close cases are a huge problem. They can push officers to either not identify a suspect and just say, we can't do this investigation, or to rapidly identify a suspect, which may lead to error. But it seems that in a, there's constantly a push saying, look, you have to have closure and you have to have finality uh, in the criminal justice system. But I think you could approach this in some ways the way we do science, which is certain things are open questions. Yes. And let's just accept we don't have enough evidence to answer this question right now, but it's something we will continue to work on. And if you could allow that, you might give officers a way to keep working on a case and not get penalized for it or to work on it when new data comes in. Has, have you had any of those discussions with? Yeah, absolutely. And there are some law enforcement agencies that are trying to think very creatively, very critically on, on what is, what's a good outcome here. Closing a case without investigating at all, that's not a good outcome. Closing a case because there was no evidence to suggest a crime happened, that's, that's important. That's a good outcome. Um, that we've done a thorough investigation, we've referred it on, that's a good outcome. And I think there's, there's a real appetite for, for thinking about that in a much more nuanced way than there once was. The trick is, is if you leave stuff open, you become open to criticism of like, oh my gosh, look how many are lingering, look how many are open. And so it takes some work both inside and outside the organization to, to do what you're suggesting, which is say, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And when we were doing it with the Detroit cases, going back and notifying survivors and saying, yeah, your kit wasn't tested. Now it has been. We have a hit. There might be an option for reinvestigation of really telling them, please don't push this issue right at this moment. The survivors took in a ton of information. Leave it open and say, you don't have to make your decision now. You can come back to us. And what they found in Detroit was when they gave them that space, survivors were more likely to come back after they had some time to digest it. So I think there's some real merit and some some promising evidence to suggest if we give people some time and space, a survivor's engagement might change. And yes, there could be new evidence that comes to bear. Yeah, again, this is another aspect that I hadn't really been aware of. The the significant portion of women don't want their kids tested. And you, you sort of explain why someone might not want kids tested. I assume that if you go in for a, an exam, everyone would want their kid tested, but that's not what you actually found. Survivors may not know even going in what it is that they're just told go to the ER, and they don't quite know what conveyor belt they've been put on, and they may not want to 
um, involve the criminal justice system. They haven't made that decision. Um, they, you know, know the offender. The offender is somebody that is a friend or an intimate partner, and they just don't want to do all of that. They just need some health care. They want to make sure they don't have a sexually transmitted disease. They may be concerned about pregnancy. So I think it's also shifting how we do those exams to, again, leave options open and not try to close everything down and make a decision right then and there in the immediate aftermath of a trauma. You are continuing this research, right? Yes. So I'm curious, what are the questions on your mind that you'd like to investigate over the next few years? I want to, I want to understand how police and prosecutors are utilizing this information. When they get the DNA hit, what happens next? How did it change the way they thought about this particular case? Are we seeing that shift to thinking about DNA as an investigatory resource? Is it actually increasing our prosecution rates? Um, if they thought the victim was lying because she wasn't demonstrably upset and the DNA shows it's a serial rapist, how is that changing the way they're approaching future cases and investigating? How is it changing organizational norms around investigations? Do they ever go back and apologize? They do. They do. Um, in the victim notification protocol in Detroit, and we went to the man on this, there needs to be an apology that, that the kit wasn't tested. It may not be from the original detective who you first had your interaction with, but the power of apology is very important. I was thinking about apology when police have a woman in and give a pretty harsh initial discussion and make it pretty clear to them they don't believe her. Later, the kit's tested, found this a serial rapist. Ever go back and say, you know, look, I, I wish. Um, I don't. I believe that is that has happened in some cases that I'm aware of. It is not uh, department protocol, shall we say. Truth and reconciliation is what you're asking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at least at least, you know, realizing that you got to treat people with respect if you expect them or the communities to engage with you. So Absolutely. if you want to go back and say you made a mistake. But you can't admit a mistake in the criminal justice system. It it is it is incredibly punitive. It doesn't have, again, as a social scientist who's been working in that space for years and was deeply, deeply embedded in Detroit, just I was so acutely aware of the culture differences that we, you know, live in a, a world of probabilities and error rates. And, you know, hey, we tried something, it didn't work. My hypothesis wasn't supported. You know, we go to bed, we get up the next day, everything's fine. They don't work in that world. An error is like, no, it, it means something very different. So again, a very, di very big culture clash of science in the criminal justice system and trying to get them to think about that differently is very hard. Yeah, it's something that's, again, really clear in the kind of wrongful conviction space. People rapidly reach closure, assuming, you know, that this person had to have done it. And then it's, it, essentially you're on, a, again, a conveyor belt yes. towards conviction. Um, yes. And, and even, you know, and, and the recognition there's an error often happens uh, years or decades later. And so there's almost no feedback, right, to let someone know that they made a mistake right off the bat. Now, something I realized a long time ago, at least it's a hypothesis of mine, which is I think wrongful convictions for many crimes are going to drop to zero practically because very soon you'll know where everybody is all the time. They're wearing wearable clothing that's sending seals. You know what they're doing yeah. at any given time. You know the accelerometer on their phone is you know, <laughs> it's telling you whether exactly. they're running or not. right? And so, yeah, I know there's some pretty serious issues, um, but it seems like there's... Long before we get there, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to be gained by yes. <laughs> testing the data we've got. I think, you know, to put on the Silicon Valley tech guy hat, it's just incredible frustration that 
the technology is improving at incredible rates, but the ability of society to efficiently use it or understand its potentiality or even its limitations responds much more slowly. Yeah, I would I would say even more dire terms. It seems like it's not even the ability of society. These are kits that are sitting there in warehouses, could have been tested. Yes. There's a capacity to do it, right? Or you could easily expand the capacity pretty rapidly. And it just wasn't done, right? It was a matter of just will or interest rather than simply ability. Yes. So in a in a open, free environment, uh, there are not a lot of $20 bills lying on the floor. When government gets involved, there are $20 billion bills lying on the floor that no one picks up. So uh, unfor- and, and I, I say that as a center-left person, but having worked in big organizations and looked at, you know, tech companies competing fiercely to deliver better products, I, I definitely don't think there are certain things that should be left to government. Is your impression, Rebecca, that you think in a few years, kits, all kits will be uniformly tested? No, I don't think so. I, I think that for that to happen, we would have to have a broader culture shift that says this crime matters, these people matter, the women, the men, the children who are sexually assaulted, that this crime matters. I think we're seeing that shift with the Me Too movement, but I don't think we're there yet. For to see every single kit tested, we have to have a society that says we care about this crime and we care about these survivors. We're making progress there, but I don't think we're there yet. Is, is it fair to say that most of these untested rape kits, the the twenty, what I would call the $20 bills lying on the ground, are they all linked to under, under-resourced communities? Or? No, yeah, not necessarily. So, no, okay. they're not. Yeah. Um, we see the, the, the headline-making pileups yes. in resource-strapped, often communities yes. of color. But no, it is, I mean, I've, I've been in rural white America yes. looking at untested rape kits, and right. it's, it's, it's there. It is in lots of different places. Right. So, so, but these initial ones, even, I mean, now I think it, they may be more, but like initial ones were like in New York, in L.A. Yes. These are places which were not resource-strapped. Right. So the question is what what stops, you know, performance from being better in certain contexts. And I, personally, I think it has a lot to do with the local incentives and also the quality of the human capital. The people that are running that operation may not do a good job. There, there may be things they can do 10 times better, but they just don't can't figure out how to do it. And I see it again and again. Yeah, I don't think this is actually that complicated, right? I mean, this is a matter of taking it and shipping it off to a lab, right? No, but if you're not aware that DNA technology has improved, you're literally not aware. Like, you don't read Science Magazine, okay? You just literally don't know that this capability, this magical capability, in 1980, this would be magic. So, so you can't do. You're not aware that it's possible. So, who can blame you for not funding it or telling you to? No, because the police station down the road knows it's actually improved. They didn't tell you. Look, it's look, go survey kid. these guys and see what their level of knowledge is. I mean, I'm saying they're. they're I mean, they're, I, clearly yeah. Rebecca's noticed that people don't have this, but it's not yeah. like it's in just in science journals. I assume. I mean, I, maybe we're. Maybe I can ask you, right? Did you mm-hmm. find Police Department A seem to have very little knowledge of the developments in tech technology and DNA databases? Police Department B, not too far away, actually had pretty good information on this topic. There is variability, site to site, city to city, even within the same state. But across the board, this is the law enforcement community is not like up on the latest things yeah. happening well, in the lab. They're just not. Again, at the risk of drawing it back to the Silicon Valley thing, let me give you standard startup ex- uh, experience. So you're a startup guy. You've built a better widget. It, it's 10x better than the widget that currently huge company called Microsoft or huge company called Checkpoint Software is selling. 
And you go in and meet with a senior executive at that company, and you say, hey, put the widget on the desk and say, this does this, what you guys are supposed to be doing, but 10 times better. Should we talk? And this guy who has advanced degrees from top universities, is highly compensated, doesn't understand, literally doesn't understand what you're saying to him and doesn't believe you or you know, doesn't understand the market opportunity. And that's a standard startup experience. Otherwise, how could little teams of 10 people destroy giant companies? Well, you're going to find the same thing in a police department and you're going to find the same thing at a major hospital where there's some doctor who literally is not following the research and doesn't realize that what he's doing is far short of optimal. So yeah, I, st- I, I still think this is case is quite different. This is the case of not to advanced technology. This is a case where they've actually communicated in one police department, right? The one next door simply hasn't gotten the same. Just literally some kind of simple description read at roll call saying, look, you can now actually find people's identities through putting something in the coded database. It's not advanced technology. It's simply a matter of communicating something in a simple continuing education program that yes. you know, is not, it's super complicated. So it's not cutting edge, it doesn't require advanced degrees, right? It's just like- No, I was giving that as an example of even though the people are the, the okay, finest okay. human capital that we can find, they can still be in the wrong state of mind for years at a time. Sure, yeah, so, the, 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 I think we all see that, right? Yeah. The question is, this strikes me as exceedingly low-hanging fruit. You're not gonna solve the problem you've described, very easily. You can solve the problem that Rebecca's described pretty easily by, I think, just having some just aggressive communication, not even with detailed information. Like, look, you can now do X, Y, and Z. Say that three, four times, maybe 10. So how long till this problem is solved? So easy. So easy, Corey. I'm not saying it's a no, $20 bill lying I'm on not, the pavement. I'm, I'm, Someone will just look, snatch it up, right? I mean, the well, question is- the problem is, is what again, which which problem are you trying to solve? If you're trying to solve the intersectionality of sexism, racism, classism uh, that gives That's rise to, to sexual assault yeah. and to the fact that the criminal justice system isn't going to take this crime seriously, yeah. that's a different problem. The problem of getting the rape kit tests, that of actually the testing, that is solvable. That right. is very t- so, solvable. So here's, maybe we all agree that there is a simple course of action and the budget required to do it is well within, say, if FedGov just decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to give money out to local municipalities to do this. The amount of money is not crazy. Maybe a lot of experts, including economists at Stanford and distinguished professors at Michigan State, all agree that, yeah, to first order, the best thing is just to test all the rape kits. You know, don't, don't be so stingy about this. Let's just get it done and let's set it up so it's faster. How long before that's in place? I have no idea. So I, I think the problem, it, you know, again, it's like, I think it's obvious to you that there's a solution here, but the time it takes to get it implemented in the real world. Yeah, of course. Extreme, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying is the solution yeah. is not complicated. Some, it's yeah. some not problems complicated. are. Implementing yeah. may be difficult, but it's not like we have to like figure out what to do, right? In this case, there's no, it's not like there's a problem. You no, just, you, so you have figured it out. No, but, I there, think, but there are other people in power who control like the precinct down the street who maybe haven't, don't, no, no, don't no, I, believe I, what you're saying. No, I think almost, I think my... I don't put words in because I think it's pretty clear what the solution is. There's a whole different matter of getting that solution actually implemented, right? But the question- It's a little of both. There are some that do, that do not accept this as a solution. I still have that. I, I travel right. around the U.S. So, so how often do you, you simply say, look, to test the rape kits, right? What's What do people, what kind of barriers do people put in your way when you say, look, you need to communicate better to the police on these issues, you need to test the kits? Um, I don't have the money. I always hear the, the the resource barrier going back to Steve's point. This is within the the realm of what the federal government could fund and do. But then they're like, I don't want to spend the money on this crime. Yeah, they're not convinced. But that, they're no, not no, convinced. No, 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 that's a different point. That's saying, look, I don't have the this solution. It looks pretty obvious. Look, I don't want to spend the money in that solution. But it's not questioning whether we actually don't know how to solve this problem. That's a different point. Well, okay, let me make a more nuanced point. So. Imagine that there are cases where maybe it, it is the ROI on that specific rape kit is low, 
and the local police detective realizes this for some reason, okay? But on average, if we just had a simple rule, like test all of them, the net ROI is super positive, and this has been established by academic studies. I don't think that point is broadly realized. It is not broadly realized. So it it's a cog- I think realized. it's a, I call this a cognitive problem, but you can call it something else. Well, I want. think you, the only way to do this is actually try to go and talk to a lot of police departments and say, look, you know, you just simply test your kits. They're going to cost this much. We'll provide this money for you, right? Yeah. And then see what happens, right? But that's they, and that's what we're doing. Right. Okay. And, the, and it always begs the question, what are the happening in the law enforcement agencies that didn't apply for this federal money? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm not Why? in those organizations. I'm in the organizations right. that did apply for so the money. So I'm trying to say is there are plenty of well, probably well-intentioned uh, police you know, departments out there who didn't apply for this money, who don't realize that the ROI on this is enormously positive, even if you just use the simple rule. And they just don't, they're not aware. And that that's the state of the world. That's how things work. Yeah, that's right. Again, I think we're lumping a bunch of things together, right? We're lumping one thing together is getting the police authors themselves to realize coded database has been updated. You can now actually identify offenders, et cetera. So that's sort of one issue of the problem. The actual problem is actually saying, trying to get uh, police departments say to inform them on the possibility of testing kits and applying for uh, federal funds. So I guess we we're kind of lumping a couple of things together yes, in this yes, discussion. Yes, we are. But 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 the fact that you just su- don't suddenly get everybody implementing yeah, the right solution. Yeah, it's obvious, right. Yeah. yeah. So how how I mean I won't be surprised if five years from now it's still you know okay the the probability that a given rape kit is processed properly goes up significantly, but it's still far short of what the optimum is in terms of ROI. It depends on a lot of factors. It depends on federal funding, right? It's unclear exactly what will happen there. Right. Yes. Um, and and getting people to want to do it, to have the funding, to utilize the information. You know, it is an economic issue. It's a forensic issue. It's a psychological issue. There's a lot of different facets to, to making this happen. And there's got to be some kind of uh, feedback, or at least I'd say, Sanction for not doing it right. As long as people cannot do things, uh, and have to be no consequences. Um, the issue of consequences for police, I believe, is probably a topic for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do, to this guy? Right? I mean, uh, you know, he's he reports to the mayor. If the mayor likes him, they play golf together. What are you going to do? Look, it's a general problem again, especially for I'm always aware of it from the wrong conviction literature. Right? There's very rarely feedback for making mistakes of that kind. Right. And that's what drives it. drives Look, it drives error in science. Uh, at least it drives our failure to reduce error in science. Yep. It drives your er- ability to reduce error almost in any area. You've got to have feedback. And if communities are taking this money and, say, counting their kits <laughs> and not doing anything else with it, <laughs> unless there's uh, some good journalist is going to go out and report that story, it's going to become an embarrassment. Exactly. Yep. Right. You know, if there's some sort of general bias in the community against uh, rape victims, that could go on for quite a long time. Right. But that, this is what I meant by in the state of the world, there are many obvious solutions that are not implemented, many good things that could be done or yeah, not absolutely. done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so it's interesting. You, you straddle a lot of different areas. You, you, you're, you're a researcher. Yes. But you're also, are you working with these departments to help them improve their I practices? Am. I am. Uh, community engaged research. I am not, you got to bring your findings to the real world. We're not going to close the science practice gap through our, our traditional methods of dissemination. Dissemination is, of course, our peer reviewed journal articles, and it is the podcast, it is the 
trainings. It is the going to practitioner-oriented conferences of deliberately putting myself in spaces that are not common for academics and to talk to them and to hear them and to be challenged. I can tell you there's nothing quite like presenting your data at a conference full of prosecutors. It makes a a standard academic conference actually (laughs) quite a bit easier, to be honest. But, you know, to do that. So, yes, I'm engaged in the training. I'm engaged in the work. That's To me, that's what a land-grant university should be doing. That's what we should be doing is, is taking our good quality research and seeing it through to implementation. I, I think it's fantastic. I wish we could modify our incentive system within the academy a little bit to give more incentive for people to be uh, engaged outside the ivory tower. Is this the point where I remind you that you're senior vice president of research? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're, yeah. Well, that, no, I mean, I yeah. meant that in an operational yeah, sense. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yeah. And we do see that in some universities and some academies to think critically about what engagement means. What is impact? And impact is not just an impact factor of a journal. I want to have a good publication. Obviously, that's well respected by my peers in the scientific community. And I want to make a difference in Detroit. I want to make a difference in Michigan. I want to make a difference in multiple jurisdictions. That's why I'm a scientist. Yeah, we should start being giving people tenure for actually more practical activities than well, number of peer-reviewed journals. So a articles. narrower one that we've already faced is, okay, like if you patent things or you create innovations that start companies and make it to the market... How should that count vis-a-vis your publications in scholarly journals? And so there's there are some universities that have actually talked about using that as a specific separate criterion in your promotion file. And I, I could see a very strong case for this kind of work as well. Yeah, one thing I've been talking to some international organizations about is possibly having people who kind of occupy a sort of lime, a kind of you know a combination of being a faculty person researcher. And a kind of practical consultant who actually goes mm-hmm. out and tries to implement projects. Yep. Um, and it's clear that there are people, you need people with both of these skills, but it's not really an obvious place for them to be employed because we force people to jump through the hoops for peer, peer review and purely academic research to get tenure. And consulting firms basically rate people on how much money you bring in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if we could have that kind of a, a, a kind of hybrid position here, it mm-hmm. seems like it'd be a, yep. a real opportunity for society. I think we do do pretty well here. You know, in many of our areas, people are fairly well engaged, mm-hmm. and uh, more so than in many institutions. Another one that we have, you know, on the ag side is we have people who are practitioners who actually they're paid to, you know, their main activity is actually interfacing with real farmers and bringing the technologies out from the university into the field. And so, but that's a kind of special thing that we have that most universities wouldn't have that. Do you think there's a trend in your field towards more engagement? Absolutely. I see it in many of the social science disciplines, psychology, criminal justice, education too, of uh, that that feeling of we, we've done this work, we, we know what works, we have a good idea from the science, and yet we're, we're not seeing it happen in the real world. And we have some really good, credible, empirically supported ideas on how to make something better. And realizing that we are not going to, that change isn't going to happen without us going outside of our comfort zone. And again, I don't mean to suggest that all scientists need to do that. There's some that it's like, you know what, you're best at the bench, stay there, you're good. And then there's some that are going to be more comfortable or can tolerate the discomfort of working in different spaces and, and you know, running up against different disciplines, different uh, values, different approaches, and to try to bring the science out. And I like that. That's that's something I like doing. And I see more and more of my colleagues in the social sciences wanting to do that. It's definitely been a trend in economics, right? There's been much more focus on empirical work, uh, people get involved in education and other kinds of things, you know, whether it's uh, um, you're trying to test whether certain interventions are, are mm-hmm. better. Um, 
and much less an inclination to focus on purely theoretical uh, studies and model building. It, I think it's, you know, I've got a general view which in order for an academic discipline to survive, uh, it's got to have a constituency outside of itself. It's, I think, a problem with killed philosophy in many ways. It tried to become, <laughs> you know, science in this very abstract way, and it didn't interact with any fields within the academy. It, it basically did nothing for society, and so it just sort of dwindled over time. I think the same thing is often true for linguistics, but it seems like here's a real case where you can show that research is obviously practical, yes, and, and then it should be uh, kind of extended. And a lot of the onus, I think, is on us to to start building those bridges to get out of our comfort zone to go try that. And it, it won't always be well-received. It won't always be comfortable. Um, there's a real, well, the communications, arts, and sciences tells us it is both art and science in communicating this. And, and you know, you may be skilled in one area of your discipline, but not another. So again, a team model can work of bringing people in from different disciplines, but there's a lot of different strategies to close the science practice gap. You got to make a decision that you want to close the science practice gap and, and, and be part of whatever different type of solution you want. But I'm guessing you're motivated really by pure idealism that you just think, you know, you see these problems that maybe could be improved, the situation could be improved, and you want to make a difference. Whereas, like, you know, if you took a very stereotypical view of a professor, well, they want to get their promotion and tenure and lots of citations. And boy, it takes so much energy to go and talk to that police chief, and he doesn't really like me, and uh, there's a big communication barrier. It's it's just, the in- I think, the incentives uh, it, in the academy uh, to induce people to do what you're doing aren't really there. It's too easy just to be a narrow scholar and just focus on the disciplinary stuff. And so it's just amazing that we have people like you who are so idealistic, they're willing to really, you know, because it takes so much drive and energy to go out in the real world and actually change things. It does. And and it that that is why I get up in the morning. Yeah. It, it is not to create another peer review. Yep journal article. It really isn't. It is to make the world safer for men, women, and children. That's why I do what I do. I don't let, I don't, I don't lose sight of that goal. Fantastic. Of course, I I do want to defend the, the, the purest guy who, or gal who says, no, my publication in the long run over the next hundred years or whatever, we're building this huge edifice of human knowledge and you need these rigorous peer reviewed papers. So what I'm doing is important too. Absolutely. So, and we're not, and, and we're not I need, denigrating that at all. I need, and so, I need that work. Yeah, I need that exactly. work. I've said that to many yeah. of my colleagues who, who aren't engaged in community work and aren't applied. I'm like, who do you think I'm citing? Yes. I'm, I, I need your work. I need my work. I need other applied scholars. So I don't, I, I get impatient with the sort of basic applied distinction. It's like, yes. it's science. Yes. It's a lot of different ways we can do science. And, and we need the synergy between the different uh, aspects of what we do. And that includes, I think, going out and doing engaged work in the community. A lot of research just isn't appropriate to engagement, you know? Sure. Someone's working on some kind of protein Quarks structure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, in some fields, it's been pretty traditional for a long time to have engagement, like engineering. Yeah. Often people help to design things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just interviewed Joe Cesaria, right, from your department, right. and Joe works on uh, police shootings. And Corey, so. Corey has a, a fascination with, uh, I don't know what it is, crime or police work or... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I have absolute fascination. I, I'm, I'm interested in criminal justice, I think, for social and political reasons also, but sure. I think research, it's such a heavily politicized area of discussion. It is. And it's great when you actually can get data to get, I don't want to say get the truth, but get much more clarity on these issues, which are often really confused in the public mind. People... You know, there's almost there's very little very little signal out there. People take very different views based on the kind of political orientation. And right. if you're just in politics and science, you want to know actually what the world's like. So that's kind of what 
really fascinates me about these areas. It seems really relevant. You know, I'm just wondering other areas where you could find potential policies that are really relevant. I mean, I think about education because that's an area where you actually have had people trying out theories uh, mm-hmm. in school systems, right? So I can think of education and policing, but you know, I think uh, any of the growth areas would be. I'd definitely like to hear about them. One of the kind of theoretical things that's occurred to me in just our discussion is if you had perfect policing, perfect law enforcement, which I don't know, who knows, maybe they're going to get there in China or something. What fraction of the population do you actually have to lock up to get the crime rate down literally almost to zero? Like, is it basically 1% of the population commits all the crimes? Well, <laughs> it's, it's it's very complicated because, look, you know, it, when everybody's watching you, right? you know, Less Look, crime. I, I, I regularly speed, right? And I'm not going to be speeding probably if right. everyone's watching right. they me. They immediately so. just debit the money out of your account as you as your as but, your speedometer. But hits. but, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But there are many people right who are kind of on the borderline. Yes. And and if there's greater surveillance, maybe much less. Right. Inclined. So of course, of course, that percentage goes down as enforcement gets better because get better because people just stop committing crimes. But imagine that the 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 rate of criminality didn't really go down, but you really could identify those people immediately. How many would you have to lock up? Like, who's actually causing all these problems? So this this is a question. I think this kind of comes back to you notice people are multiple offenders, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah. what if you notice what fraction of is there is there a core group of people responsible for say ten or twenty percent of the rapes in? That's a good question. It, there's a lot of debate in my disciplines about what that would be, and I think the simplest thing I can say is though we know one in four to one in five females will be victims of sexual assault, that does not mean one in four and one in five men right. are, are, are offenders. There, there's a definite disconnect there where a smaller proportion are committing repeat crimes. How many, what percentage we get are repeat offenders, I think is something that is is really hard to know. Um, we have methodological issues of self-report. Is everybody going to self-report their behavior correctly? If we use the quote-unquote official you know, crime records, well, we know, at least in the crime I study, those are hardly unbiased accounts of what happened. So we get into some real chicken and egg issues of trying to figure out how many acts have been done by an individual person. That's one of the reasons why I love the DNA evidence. It's like, well, whatever you said, yeah. your DNA is somewhere That's you a, said it wasn't going to be. Right. I mean, you get a lower bound, like say you you catch some guy and then you run him through the database and you realize this guy's sexually assaulted 10 women. So immediately you, you get a lower bound on, you know, how, right. How many he's done. Right. So, uh, you could get an estimate for this distribution. You know, this was part of a theory of the kind of tough on crime in the nineties. Right. And they locked up an enormous number of people and, and some people not for gender based violence. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not for gender based violence. And sometimes for drug stuff, which exactly. But the argument people have made is the the crime drops of the nineties were the result of locking up so many people. So they're kind of testing your theory or they did test it. Well, that's one scenario. That's one claim that, that, that kind of strict enforcement really reduced the crime rate overall. There are other hypotheses for that. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I've enjoyed this too. And I think we've identified a number of other topics we'd like to talk to you about at some point in the future. Yeah, and I want to I want to say, uh, really, I think you're an exemplary faculty member. It's amazing that you're involved in such complex things in the real world and also doing great scholarly stuff. So thank you. I we're, appreciate that. We're very that. proud of you at Michigan State. Thanks. I appreciate that too. Are we, is that a wrap? Yeah, I guess it's a wrap. <laughs>